Support for today's debut episode of On One comes from Form, the newest brand from Tristan Walker and the creators of Bevel. Form is the first women's prestige hair care collection to celebrate beauty in all its forms. Designed for all hair textures, the Form collection minimizes guesswork and makes hair care simpler by offering personal regimens specifically designed for individual hair needs. Head to formbeauty.com backslash Angela to get 10% off your hair care regimen. Discount will be applied at checkout. That's F-O-R-M beauty.com backslash Angela. Angela Rye. Angela Rye. Angela Rye. Angela Rye. Angela Rye. Angela Rye. We have Miss Angela Rye. Good morning. Good morning. You trying to have me jump across this table already? <laughs> Let me help you. And and the and the Republican Party is not the party of the 13th and 14th Amendment anymore. Your party is now one of oppression. So what I'm going to tell you is very clearly, and I say this all the time, and hopefully this will bless your life and change it. <laughs> Oh, my history is clear. Your history is ass backwards. In this moment, I'm going to Beyonce you. Boy, bye. You so out of line right now. She's still not talking about grabbing any guy by the nuts. So let's just be frank about that. (laughs) For all my children that are like born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight. Pray. They see God and everything I write here. So, hey, everyone, I'm Angela Rye. I'm happy to be hosting this new podcast called On One with A-Rye. For the old homies, you all know I've been on one. For the new listeners, I hope that you will see just how on one I am, and maybe you'll come along for the ride. I am a TV commentator. Maybe you've seen me on CNN. I also do commentary on the radio, on NPR. Perhaps you've heard a segment or two. But either way, I'm happy to be doing this. Happy you've tuned in, and I hope that you will stay on board every single week for the greatest 57 minutes of your week. At this time, I'm going to talk more about the podcast and what you can expect. It's a podcast. (laughs) You've gone off on me for months on every social media platform. I use Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. So here I am and I already need something back. Hit that subscribe button like yesterday. I don't have it all figured out, but I have a well-defined mission that I have embraced. And if I can in any way help you find your mission and your purpose through my own journey, I'm all in. I know that I'm on a journey to wokeness, to be more conscious, to search for truth. So we may as well do this journey together. But be clear, sometimes it just won't be that deep. Like sometimes meaning segments every single week. This podcast is about the things I love. My blackness, obviously, justice, politics, music, and the ratchet. I mean, I'm self-described as and self-defined as sophista ratchet. Equal parts sophisticated and equal parts ratchet. So the bad and bougie phenomenon speaks to my soul (laughs) every week. I'm going to give you this moment in blackness, which will be full of black facts, hot albums, hot tracks, hot ass messes, historical moments, black businesses making moves, and sometimes the ratchet because I watch reality TV. We also have Conversate, which will be yours truly building with a newsmaker and or one of the greatest minds of our time. We'll also feature a political highlight and a political low life, not to be confused with a low light. There'll be a low life every single week. And then we'll also have that guy from Q&A with Papa Rye. Yes, my dad will be on sometime so we can bring you all into our regular intergenerational dialogues. We always agree on the end goal, but just rarely on the means to that end. I know I'm really blessed to be able to have these kinds of conversations with my dad. So I want to share that with y'all. 
Occasionally, we will also do an Ask Angela, where I will answer your questions from social media. And last but definitely not least, you're going to get an action-oriented rant from me or one that answers just what in the hell is going on with this administration. And the greatest part about this, to me at least, is that this is all going to go down in 57 minutes or less. It's hard for me to concentrate like that on long podcasts. I'm walking around here with undiagnosed ADD or whatever, so I'm giving you what I would want, a podcast snack. And what I hope will be some of the best 57 minutes of your week every single week. So that said, let's get this party started. And now, and now moment, moment in blackness. blackness. This moment in blackness. This Jay-Z album, though, is not the week of the release anymore. But I just can't stop talking about it. If Beyonce dropped Lemonade, then this joint is the sweet tea. Like the kind from Chick-fil-A that y'all ain't supposed to have no more because Chick-fil-A ain't woke. I digress. 444, though, I think it's deeper than him waking up at 444 a.m., At least I hope it is, because the numbers have so many meetings. I mean, I think it's for our last real president, right? Barack Obama, who was number 44, and their anniversary and birthdays, which are all on the 4th. If it wasn't, this Sweet Tea album is now, as of this podcast, (laughs) officially dedicated to POTUS, the last real one, as I've said, and to J&B's marriage. This dude hits you with building intergenerational wealth. The beauty in black excellence, the challenges he's had in his marriage and being faithful. And he even took the time to sideswipe every single time that ever existed with the story of OJ with this line. I'm not black. I'm OJ. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Then my favorite line on the entire album. I'm trying to give you a million dollars worth of game for nine ninety nine. I mean, it's just fire. And then, of course, the bonus tracks that have been leaked. Blue Ivy got bars and he continues the paradigm shift for some of the brothers out here from Big Pimpin' to Responsible Family Man and Husband. It's just a dope album. Jay, you the real MVP, my dude. And it's not just for this vulnerable, woke-ass, sweet tea album. It's also for supporting the movement in word and in deed from bailing out protesters to giving voice to our issues. We see you. Hey, everybody, this is our first ever guest on On One with Angela Rye. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who I've historically called the nation's congresswoman, is joining us. And now I call her the queen of the resistance because that is exactly what she is and how she represents. Congresswoman Waters, welcome to On One with A. Rye. Thank you. I'm just so excited to be here with you and looking forward to a good conversation we're going to have this afternoon. Yes. Yes. So I really want to get started um, with just the basics, like who you are and where you came from, because for some reason, the millennials think you just popped up out of nowhere. I know. I know. They uh, have adopted me, uh, (laughs) but they don't really know my past. Yes. And so it has been very interesting, Angela, uh, because they are excited about uh, the way that I speak truth to power, kind of. Uh, but they don't know that basically I've been doing this all my life. Yes. There was a break, a, a period when I've been focused on Wall Street mm-hmm. because I'm the ranking member of the Financial Services Committee. And so that took me away from uh, much of the kind of uh, activism mm-hmm. and challenges that I've been involved in uh, way back, uh, even before I you know, came to Congress mm-hmm. in the California State Assembly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm Maxine Waters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm married, 
uh, to Sydney Williams, former ambassador uh, to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. I have uh, two very grown adult children <laughs> and uh, two grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I come from St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. and I come from a huge family, 12 brothers and sisters. Wow. And a mother who, you know, part of the time she was a single mother. She was married twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have like two sets mm-hmm. uh, in my family. Uh, but I, um, you know, was reared in St. Louis, uh, came to California uh, following my husband's um, uh, stint uh, in in the service, in the Army. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked, started out as a telephone operator mm-hmm. and did all kinds of jobs until uh, I went back to school and I graduated from Cal State L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, the real turning point in my life, I do believe, uh, was Head Start. I wow. went to work for Head Start. I started as an assistant teacher. And then I went on to become uh, the supervisor of parent involvement and volunteer services. And this brought me in in, in contact with elected officials. Mm-hmm. During that time, it was the time of the war on poverty. Wow. And so what you had was uh, these efforts uh, to deal with poverty and to deal with communities that had been left off of America's agenda. Mm-hmm. And so Head Start was exciting. It was an opportunity for poor parents and working class families to give their children an early childhood mm-hmm. education, which they never would have been able to afford, like upper middle class and rich kids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, you know, Head Start, not only did we teach parents that they could basically take control of the children's educational destiny. But we also taught them the value of interacting with elected officials Mm -hmm. and the school board and how they could be in control of their communities. And of course, you know, I was learning all the wild and this was a real defining moment for me. And so coming out of that, it's when the women's movement Mm -hmm. Uh, was beginning to grow and to flourish. Mm -hmm. And I got involved with Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and all of these women uh, that, you know, were in the forefront of the women's movement. And so there came a time when there was a seat that was open uh, in the California State Mm -hmm. Assembly. And my predecessor uh, had gotten into some problems and he was going to retire. Mm -hmm. He's getting out. And so the women started to say, why don't you run? Mm -hmm. And we had the National Organization for Women, Mm -hmm. NWPC, Mm -hmm. National Women's Political Caucus, and those organizations who came together around my candidacy. And we had to go up against the establishment. We were not connected with organized labor or with the business community or with money. And so we put on a real grassroots campaign. Uh, It was in South L.A., And many of the women who lived in those communities uh, had began to get active around the poverty program and Head Start. Wonderful women. Mm -hmm. You know, we had Mary Henry, who was um, a leader in our community. And we had Margaret Wright, who was focused on education, who used to sit in Mm -hmm. at the Board of Education. And then we had the welfare rights mothers Mm -hmm. who were leaders. Uh, And so we had these women who were leaders in their own right. Mm -hmm. And they came around to support me Mm -hmm. and to say, you know, it's about time Mm -hmm. uh, we got a woman elected uh, into this assembly. And so I was a beneficiary of women who had been working in the community, strong women Mm -hmm. who, you know, were looking out for the children, who fought for welfare rights, uh, who fought for education. And so from that point on and going into the assembly, 
I had role models and folks that I'd interacted with that helped me uh, to define who I was and what I cared about. Mm -hmm. And so I served 14 years in the California State Assembly with Willie Brown and mm -hmm. Mike Roos and Richard Alatory. These were wonderful public policy makers. Mm -hmm. And I rose to leadership positions there. And uh, all the while, I was working with the women's movement uh, so in this me, country. Let yes. me ask you about that, because we're just um, at another precipice, thanks to your president, um, <laughs> where women's uh, uh, there's a new women's movement kind of, you know, bubbling up. And we saw some of their work um, for the Women's March on his inauguration day. And one of the things that I'm curious about is your take on kind of this ongoing historical divide that I think is still ever present um, with black women and well, women of color generally and white women. And how do you circumvent some of that to fight for the greater good when there are some legitimate challenges raised by women of color with the Women's March and whether or not folks should engage? Like, what do you say to that, given your history with? Well, you know, we've gone through this and mm -hmm. we went through this uh, in the early days of the women's mm -hmm. movement. And it's simply about white and black women doing things differently yeah. and talking about things differently. Of course, black women, for example, didn't talk about abortions. Mm -hmm. um, whatever happened back in the day uh, with midwives mm -hmm. was not to be talked about. Mm -hmm. White women were very vocal and very open about it. As a matter of fact, they had buttons with a hanger on it mm -hmm. that said, I had one, et cetera. Well, black women didn't talk about right. freedom of choice mm -hmm. in the way that white women did. And sometimes uh, that caused people to say there was a real difference between black and white women. Mm -hmm. However, we did have black women who were real feminists mm -hmm. and who gave leadership to the feminist movement. And so even though, you know, issues were oftentimes talked about differently and people showed up differently there was a strong belief, I think, by all women, black and white, mm -hmm. that was something was wrong with our society mm -hmm. that did not treat women equally mm -hmm. and didn't give women equal opportunities. And so what you see now is a revitalization mm -hmm. of the women's movement. And that march in Washington in January, mm -hmm. it's over 700,000 yeah. women out there. And we had some black women in the leadership of mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And so I think... We're on the verge of a real women's revolution. Wow. And I don't think that men in power really get it mm -hmm. and they really know what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. And so this attack on women uh, in different ways, led by the president of the United States of America, mm -hmm. he showed us what he cared about women in the campaign. Yeah. When he pointed to Carly Boriana yeah. and said, look at her face. Yeah. Who would vote for her? Mm-hmm. And it was Democrat and Republican women who resented that. Yeah. And then, of course, there's that famous video where he talked about grabbing women by the private parts yeah. and getting away with it mm -hmm. uh, because he was a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And it goes on and on and on. In fact, did you see yes. um, now he's only paying women in the White House 63 cents on the dollar to what men make. Oh, I didn't know it had been documented. Yes. An economist pulled the number 63 cents for every dollar a man I'm not surprised. No. I'm not surprised at all. Mm -hmm. This is a man who, you know, rode the back of women, the backs rather of yeah. women 
uh, in the beauty contest. Mm -hmm. And this was a man who walked into the dressing rooms Mm -hmm. of women who were dressing and undressing. So he has defined himself as someone who really doesn't have a great deal of respect for women. Even his wife had to swat his hand a couple of times. (laughs) Uh, uh, And so I think um, that told you a little something, even about whatever their relationship might be. But I think that what I'm saying to African-American women Mm -hmm. is show up. Yeah. When we have the marches, when we're at the airports, you know, pushing back on this president Mm -hmm. and his travel ban, Mm -hmm. show up Mm -hmm. because I know you're feeling it, too. And it's not simply, you know, people coming from Muslim countries Mm -hmm. or from Mexico. It's people from the Caribbean. That's right. It's people from Africa, et cetera. And so. You will find that whether it's the National Council of Negro Women or sorority women, they do, you know, care about these issues and they are active in different ways. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're seeing now is particularly with the millennials, Mm -hmm. you're seeing more diversity as people come together. And when you watch social media, it is black, white, Asian, Mm -hmm. you know, Latino, everybody who's dealing with the issues of this president and the presidency, mm-hmm. and with women's issues. So I think um, that was my fault. We got off talking about the women's movement, but I thought it was such a good opportunity for you to just provide insight on the fact that these problems aren't new. We've been dealing with That's them right. for, for decades. Right. I think the other thing, though, is you started talking about um, your rise through the California State Assembly, yes. but I also think it's important for folks to know the kind of work you were doing in Congress. Yes. So you went from the California State Assembly to Congress. Was it a complete, like, uh, culture change, yes, culture shock? Yes, yes, So tell me was. about that. Well, uh, the camaraderie in uh, the Assembly mm-hmm. was quite profound. And uh, when I got to Washington, D.C., you know, most people go their own way in the evening. Mm-hmm. Some of the men get together. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it is not like it was. Uh, in Sacramento, mm-hmm. where we had real relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so I missed that an awful lot. Uh, in addition to that, there was more support uh, for me. And I think women coming into coming into the California state legislature, as a matter of fact, my first bill mm-hmm. was a bill that I uh, put in in order to say to the men, I don't want to be a called assembly man. Why do you call women assembly men? Mm-hmm. We're not men. Mm-hmm. And so they were taken back. They were in a state of shock mm-hmm. uh, that my first bill would be that. But <laughs> Willie Brown came to my to my defense. And eventually that got changed to assembly member mm-hmm. uh, or assembly woman, they mm-hmm. would call. Uh, but I had great legislation mm-hmm. in the assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was there that I uh, put in a bill that divested all of our pension funds from businesses that were doing business in South Africa. It was there that I got a bill passed to stop strip searching Mm -hmm. of people for minor traffic offenses. Mm -hmm. It was there that I got the first bill passed dealing with sexual child abuse Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. So when I came to Washington, you have to find your way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I came with a reputation of being, you know, kind of an upstart, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking out Mm -hmm. a lot. And so I was put on the Veterans Affairs Committee Mm -hmm. and the Banking uh, Committee as punishment, kind of. Mm. The Banking Committee was a committee that people were fleeing because of a scandal that had taken place in the banking Mm -hmm. world. Uh, But I stayed there, worked with some wonderful people, uh, and eventually gained the kind of seniority uh, that 
uh, leads me, it led me to where I am now today, mm -hmm. to the ranking member. So I've worked a lot on predatory lending. Mm -hmm. I was a part of uh, the Dodd-Frank reforms. Mm -hmm. uh, in that reform, I created the AMWI office, yeah. the Office of Women and Minorities, uh, to try and get more women and minorities in financial services. I worked on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, mm -hmm. which I consider the centerpiece mm -hmm. of that reform. And that's the reform that basically dealing with payday loans yeah. and predatory lending and student loans and all of those areas where people were left to themselves mm -hmm. to fend for themselves against predatory practices, et cetera. And so it has been a long haul, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, getting on that banking committee and moving constantly, mm -hmm. you know, in seniority and dealing with Wall Street and understanding what uh, a derivative was mm -hmm. and, you know, being able to deal with hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite different mm -hmm. than dealing with the confrontation that I used to have with Chief Daryl Gates, you mm -hmm. know, on the police force mm -hmm. here in Los Angeles, et cetera. And so that's why it's this gap with the millennials mm -hmm. not knowing about Maxine Waters and the fact that not only did I um, deal with police abuse, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, other things that I did, like the war on drugs yeah. that I thought was um, a fake war on mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we had mandatory minimum sentencing mm -hmm. that was being uh, meted out. Uh, to young blacks for the most part. Which yes. this is important too because folks need to know that you had the foresight to see that this was a problem before people were even calling it out, right? Before this crime bill issue, you were saying oh, yes. the war oh, on yes. drugs was is a problem. This is going to overwhelmingly That's target right. black people. That's and right. you called it out before it started. So now, you know, folks have seen Ava DuVernay's 13th, yes. which is great. Yes. But you've been saying this, that's too. Right. I told y'all on Twitter she's been doing this. <laughs> so th I think that's a really good point, too. Yes, it's, it's a good point. And doing the Congressional Black Caucus Legislative Conference, I hold a town hall on mandatory minimums, and I've been doing it for about 15 years mm -hmm. or more. Uh, because Longer than some of y'all been alive, millennials. Yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> you, as a matter of fact, you need to tell them about the, the fact that I'm you, getting there. Oh, okay. Spoiler right. alert. She I'll wants let you know tell the story. Her. Okay. Yeah, but mandatory minimum sentencing, the drug war, dealing with um, a lot of the foreign policy, mm -hmm. a lot of attention on Haiti yes. and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I was part of a team, me and Randall Robinson, mm -hmm. that went to the Central Africa Republic mm -hmm. and brought back Aristide mm -hmm. after the coup d'etat mm -hmm. in Haiti mm -hmm. and uh, made sure that he was safe and got him to South Africa where he stayed until he got back into Haiti. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long history with a lot of work in different ways. But now uh, with this president, mm -hmm. I am focused. Well, before we get to yes. this president. The other thing that I want them to know is um, you are not afraid of anyone. And one such example is like calling the truce with the Bloods and the Crips. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, some of them may not know who the Bloods and Crips are. They are yes. gang members, yes. everybody. But I think it's so important because there was so much going on like in 1992 with the Rodney King beating and the riots and uprising here, you were front and center and trying to make sure there were just, there was peace in the community. Well, I've always worked with young people yeah. and whether it was gang members in South Central mm -hmm. or hip hop mm -hmm. and, you know, during the time of gangster rap when mm -hmm. they wanted to censor our young people, mm -hmm. you know, I, um, I said, no censorship is not, 
you know, what we should be talking about. Mm -hmm. These young people are talking about their lives. They're Mm -hmm. talking about, um, you know, what is wrong in their communities. Mm -hmm. They went into their garages and made this music and they had to market this music all by themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's telling a real story. Who's your favorite rapper? Tupac. (laughs) All eyes on me. (laughs) All eyes on me. I love it. That's right. Tupac, for sure. Yes. Uh, But anyhow, I've always worked with young Mm -hmm. people. And again, millennials, you know, probably don't know about this. Mm -hmm. But whether it was, you know, support for hip hop, which I still think is one of the most creative art forms Mm -hmm. that's ever been developed. You know, pushing back on censorship Mm -hmm. because they were telling stories about their lives that people didn't want to hear. Or the drug war Mm -hmm. uh, that was disproportionately locking up and imprisoning young black people Mm -hmm. with a failed uh, policy about crack cocaine, etc. So this has been, you know, my life. Yes. Uh, And with the young people that I worked with in public housing. I'm so proud of many of them who I still am in contact with today, whose lives have been changed. Mm. And I have three young men at Nickerson Gardens Housing Projects who are retiring after 34 years of jobs. We first got them all and they stayed. Mm -hmm. And then I have young people, some of the young men who will come to events like this. They want to know where I'm going, Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And when we were, um, you know, at the big march and rally for the LGBTQ community, Mm -hmm. uh, they came and they were with me today. Mm -hmm. I have at least one or two with me, Mm -hmm. uh, but they show up and they attend these events and we have lifelong friendships. Mm -hmm. I love that. So the other, the only other um, piece I really want to talk about before we, I know we have to get to Trump. Um, is the 2000 election. So, I mean, right now, George Bush, I'm ready to take a selfie with George Bush compared to where we are. But then at the time, you know, we ex- had experienced something else that fe- felt very much like an election was stolen from us. So just some of your thoughts about that 2000 election, because, again, some of them weren't born yet. Um, just what it meant to feel like we were robbed because they're feeling that way now um, after well, this Trump uh, election. What's interesting about The sacrifices that we've had to make historically is we've had to spend so much time, Mm -hmm. you know, fighting against discrimination, Mm -hmm. against racism, against the systems that have been designed to keep us from realizing our full potential. And I think voting systems, you know, emerge as one of those systems that we have to fight today. And we had to fight in 2000 Mm -hmm. and we've had to fight constantly. Mm -hmm. Whether we were fighting about polling places that were inadequate, Mm -hmm. uh, that had long lines, or whether we were fighting about voter ID or early voting days, Mm -hmm. or whether we're just fighting about how votes get counted and who's counting those votes Mm -hmm. and where those voting machines are crooked Or had they been tampered with? Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about 2000, you're talking about an unusual circumstance, as I remember, uh, particularly Florida, Mm -hmm. where something happened there, Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, there was supposed to have been, I believe, absentee ballots Mm -hmm. uh, that either were not counted or they were discovered Mm -hmm. after the elections. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had someone there who may have been the secretary of state mm-hmm. who was very much involved with the Republican party, mm-hmm. uh, who appeared to be working with them. And we had Gore mm-hmm. in my estimation who 
really didn't fight hard enough. Yeah. And who pushed back on uh, Bill Clinton, even during the campaign, uh, campaigning for him, uh, and then pushed back on the way that some people wanted to go to Florida and challenge the vote counts that were going on. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very painful time. Mm -hmm. And I can remember the ceremony that we go through each year when the electoral votes on the floor of Congress yeah. are absolutely counted. Mm -hmm. And I can remember challenging, you know, a Gore who was playing, you know, the the good guy mm -hmm. who, you know, we have to go along. Uh, this has happened. We can't fight it now. Let's just, you know, realize that it's all over. And I think that from my vantage point, that Democrats do not fight hard enough. Hmm. We're doing a great job on this health care reform and we're making sure that the town halls uh, have in those town halls people who can tell the stories about their lives mm -hmm. and the lack of health care and what it has meant when they had Obamacare. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that uh, when we see Republicans out there, uh, they are capable of changing the rules in the middle of the game. Yeah. And they do it often. And they do it without any remorse. Yeah. And so I want us to know that we may be in the lesser numbers now in the House mm -hmm. and in the Senate. And we don't have the White House. Yeah. But we have an opportunity in this next election to take back certainly the House mm -hmm. and the Senate. Mm -hmm. And we know that we have got to take the White House. And so I'm encouraging everybody to be a part of the resistance movement. Mm -hmm. And people are talking about uh, this president and what's going to happen in, um, you know, 2020, yeah. I guess, and those elections. I'm not waiting no, you for can't any wait. 2020. You can't I wait. want him out of here before then. We're taking a quick break to remind you that this week's episode of On One is brought to you by Form. Form is a premium hair care collection dedicated to making every hair journey simpler and better. It's the first women's prestige hair care collection to celebrate beauty in all its forms. The Form collection will help make your hair care experience personal by offering uncompromising products specifically designed for individual hair needs. For women of all hair textures, and they do mean all, the Form collection is unique, versatile, and minimizes guesswork. Just like their big brother brand, Bevel, the folks at Form were tired of seeing the women they love struggle to find hair care that was personal, effective, and high quality. Everything starts with the Form consultation, a step-by-step -step evaluation that ensures you get the best pairing of Form products and usage recommendations. I am about to do my own evaluation, and I can't wait to tell you all the results. Um, they're tremendously helpful. It sounds like a great product line. I know that my podcast sister, Crystals, brags about it. I can't wait to use it. Form was inspired by your own hair care journey and delivers uncompromising performance without sacrificing the health of your hair. As a special offer for listeners of On One, get 10% off your order by visiting formbeauty.com backslash Angela. That's F-O-R-M beauty.com backslash Angela. So on this, um, and before we get to um, his, his potential impeachment, mm -hmm. um, you said Democrats don't fight hard enough. And I think, um, and to bring this full circle to you wanted to tell them that I worked for you, the, um, 
one of the things that I really fell in love with being in your office as an intern in law school was I never saw a fight like that in, a, in an elected official. Like growing up with my dad, who um, is very much a community activist, he was always it was always him versus the elected officials. And then it was like in this one small body wearing Manolos at the protest, <laughs> you get both. You get the activist and the and the elected official. So I was like, oh, my God, this like can happen in one package deal. This is amazing. So but when you think about that or even, you know, with the CBC, I remember whispering you all, to you all the time, like, I need you to be my elbows on this. <laughs> you know, so just like knowing that you have to be yes. that strength and yes. that power so yes. often. How do you carry that burden? Do you just feel like, you know what, if they're not going to do it, I'm going to do it and I'm just going to lead the way and either they follow or they don't? Like, what type of pressure well, is that on well, you? Well, actually, it's not a burden. Mm-hmm. Here's what I believe, Angela. And and I look at you and I think about when does one come to grips with they are Mm -hmm. and whether or not we have enough people who address that issue about themselves at some point in time and hopefully they would do it earlier than Mm -hmm. later Mm -hmm. who am I what do I care about what would I like my city my town my country to be Mm -hmm. you know what is fair Mm -hmm. what is honesty what is integrity Mm -hmm. and am I the kind of person that can go to sleep at night and say, I did something good today, mm-hmm. or I push back uh, on those who are trying to take advantage mm-hmm. of the most vulnerable in our society, or am I one who's trying to rip off people myself? Mm-hmm. Who are you? Mm-hmm. And I think philosophically, when one comes to grips with their values, mm-hmm. then I think you can do whatever you need to do. And for me, I know unfairness when I see it. Yeah. I don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to analyze it. I don't have to ask somebody if it's real. I know it. Yeah. I feel it and I resent it. Mm. And it uh it it causes me to act on it. And so whether it's a Rodney King that mm-hmm. I see getting beaten and I sit up in my bed and I say, oh, no, I got to do something about this. Yeah. Or whether it's Katrina where I see kids on the street holding signs, so somebody come and help us get out of my bed, get on a plane, go there. Yeah. Whether it is, you know, again, young rap artists who are being uh, basically disparaged because people don't understand what they're talking about, wanting to lock them up, put them in jail, censor them. I know it when I see it and I feel it very deeply and I act on it. Mm -hmm. And of course, what is happening with this presidency, it's the same kind of feeling. And you talked about one of the things that I loved, and it's a moment that I felt like Bill O'Reilly saw as powerful, Mm -hmm. so he tried to steal it from you. Yes. You went on the House floor and you were talking about what it means to be a patriot in the era of Trump. Yes, yes. And so for the millennials who didn't get to hear what really happened because dumb Bill O'Reilly was talking about wig. That's right. I think it would be good for you to talk about what patriotism looks like in 2017, given the circumstances. Well, I'm glad that you asked that because I really do think that, you know, the Black Caucus in particular Mm -hmm. uh, should, uh, you know, examine how patriotism has been defined and who has defined it. Yes. And, and, and understand that we have to be in the leadership of talking about patriotism because there are no better patriots than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, 
We know that there are those who wave the flag and think they wave it bigger and higher than we do. Mm-hmm. But we're the ones who have fought to make this country better mm-hmm. and to make it stronger mm-hmm. and to make it more fair. And we've sacrificed mightily, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about our young men and women who have gone to war yeah. and fought and died, come back home, couldn't mm-hmm. get a job, mm-hmm. couldn't get a house, you know, and All of the sacrifices that we have made, Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King and others who died Mm -hmm. fighting for freedom and justice and trying to make sure uh, that the leadership of this country understand the Constitution Mm -hmm. and what it's supposed to be about. And so I think that we must stand up and show our patriotism and not allow others to define themselves who are not patriots. How can you be a patriot and you stand with a president like the one that we have who is colluding with Russians Mm -hmm. and with Putin and the Kremlin? Mm -hmm. And I started saying this early because I examined his allies Mm -hmm. and their ties to Russia and to the Kremlin and to the oligarchs of Russia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they undermined our election system. Yeah, they hacked into the DNC Mm -hmm. and he will not even challenge Putin on it. As a matter of fact, he thinks Putin is a great man, Mm -hmm. a great president. Mm -hmm. And so if you care about the democracy and you have a country that has undermined your democracy, tapped into your election system to our states, as well as the DNC, and you can't stand up for your country and your democracy. How can you claim patriotism? Mm -hmm. That is the first definition of patriotism, whether or not you will defend your democracy Mm -hmm. and what it's supposed to stand for and whether or not you will fight to strengthen it. And that's the the discussion I had on the floor that upset Bill O'Reilly so much and he had to try and come at me in some way. Mm -hmm. But I let him know, you can't intimidate me. You can try and undermine me, but you really can't. Mm -mm. And so I'm a strong black woman. And I didn't I didn't say this, but I didn't just start being strong yesterday. (laughs) Been this way for a long time. And so in the final analysis, (laughs) his history and his background was so bad. He had been a part of, you know, Fox News paying out millions of dollars for sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And between Maxine Waters and all of that, it just caught up with him. (laughs) And so he's not there anymore. Bye, Bill. Bye, Bill. He's, that's right. <laughs> so, okay. So I want to talk to you now um, in the time we have left on, you know, what you tell um, maybe not just young folks, but older folks too, who might be watching everything that's going on and just getting discouraged because it seems like there's so much wrong. And if Barack Hussein Obama would have done one one millionth of what Donald Trump has done, he would have been... Absolutely. absolutely impeached or never would have had the chance. So what do you say to folks who may be frustrated or discouraged about how to continue on in the resistance and just what's next? Like, what should we be working on? Well, first of all, I want people to know that uh, they have a leadership role that they've got to claim. Mm -hmm. Don't wait and hope somebody else does something. And I have people who come up to me all the time and say, oh, Ms. Waters, you just, I just hope that you'll, you know. No, we, this is ours yeah. to do together. Mm-hmm. First of all, I talk about showing up. Showing up is an important concept because parents are not showing up enough at the school boards mm-hmm. to determine the public policy about education. 
We're not showing up enough in the town hall meetings. Mm -hmm. We're not showing up enough in the rallies. And our faces have got to be there. It is not simply for someone else to do. Not only do we need to show up when the invitation is extended to everybody to do so, Mm -hmm. we've got to organize in our own communities and decide we're going to have a day. We're going to have a Saturday where we're going to demand uh, that this president will show his tax returns. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. I shouldn't have to go to Washington Mm -hmm. uh, to be a part of a rally there. Let's organize, organize, organize. The other thing is your elected officials are elected to serve and represent. Yes. Stop thinking you can't talk to them. Mm -hmm. Show up at their offices. Mm Mm-hmm. Call them into your community meetings. Mm -hmm. Raise questions about their legislative agenda. Tell them where you want to hear their voices. Mm -hmm. We don't do enough of that. We're oftentimes too satisfied with a resolution. Mm -hmm. Show up at church. Mm. Say a few Bible verses that we learned overnight. (laughs) And get, you know, a big applause from the congregation. Mm -hmm. And people are happy that we showed up. Yeah. That's not good enough. Yeah. What is your elected official's voting record? Yeah. What do you know about it? And how do you find out that information? I want everybody to do the first very basic thing and find out who your representatives are. Who is your city council person? Who is your county representative? Mm -hmm. Who is your state representative? Who is your congressional representative? And who is your United States senator? Mm -hmm. I find people that just don't know that. Yeah. And so that's very basic. Go to the Internet and find out who represents you. Mm -hmm. Then make a telephone call to their office, introduce yourself and tell them you want to talk with them about whatever's been on your mind that you have not had an opportunity to. I didn't know you would have an opportunity uh, to talk with them about. Mm -hmm. Write an an email. Mm -hmm. Write an email your representatives. We look at all of those letters and those emails Mm -hmm. and we make a decision about who's saying what and who is showing some influence and some power. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to be activated and not just in one setting, but in every setting. Mm -hmm. You know, our churches have different ministries. Mm -hmm. And so there should be a ministry about predatory lending and home buying Mm -hmm. and help with people who are signing on the dotted line, Mm -hmm. you know, let them feel comfortable to bring that contract to the lawyers in the congregation Mm -hmm. and to the real estate people and say, is this a good one? Or am I getting into something I can't afford? We've got to be more active and more involved Mm -hmm. at every step of the way, whether you're in a sorority or fraternity or with a labor union, are you just, You know, kicking it with your friends. Mm -hmm. Talk about what's happening in the news. Mm -hmm. Talk about what you can do and contribute something to your elected officials, whether it's a dollar. Because when you take a look at Bernie Sanders, he didn't have any, you know, big time, you know, business money and Mm -hmm. uh, all the kind of money that comes, you know, uh, from PACs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Those were small dollars, one dollar, two dollars, you know. Contribute so that your elected officials don't have to depend on others who are not about your community mm-hmm. for their support to run for re-election. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the things. Those are good. And yeah. the thing that I wonder, too, is um, what you tell folks who, you know, they may have always voted Democratic 
but don't feel like Democrats are necessarily working as well for them. And you talked about Democrats aren't always as strong as they need to be. The party's in a unique space right now. It seems, you know, still kind of in crisis mode since the election. What ways should people get involved with the party or should well, they? Well, let they me be just say their this. Energy in other ways? You know, sometimes you think about maybe there should be something else to recommend people to. But right now, your major parties are Democrat and Republican. Yep. And there's no way that I believe that you should be a part of the Republican Party. Uh, and I think you should work to make the Democratic Party stronger and better. Mm-hmm. Get involved with the Democratic Party. Go to your county meetings. Go to your state mm-hmm. meetings. Run for delegate. We saw a little bit more of that happening yeah. uh, in this election, last election, last November. Mm-hmm. And so I want people to get involved, to speak up, to help define the issues. But I, the Democratic Party is absolutely the better party mm-hmm. uh, for African-Americans in particular, for poor people, for working people. Who do you think's fighting mm-hmm. for uh, improving wages? You know, minimum wages would not be at $15 an hour, as we're seeing happening in some Service jurisdictions, mm-hmm. but for Democrats. Yeah. You know, Republicans resent that. Mm-hmm. They don't support that. I could go down the list, whether it's this health care mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Trump care is different from Obamacare, and it will not provide the kind of coverage. 22 million people will lose that coverage, mm-hmm. and it's going to be some of those poor people who voted for Trump. Yeah, that's true. And one day they'll learn to vote their interests. On the very last thing, this is a very simple question. You, you are called, called both Auntie Maxine right now yes. and Queen Maxine. Yes. So we want to know what you prefer. Look, <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel blessed that I've been adopted. Yeah. And so... Young people can call me whatever they want to. <laughs> if if auntie fits them, I'm good with that. Uh-huh. If queen fits them, I saw somebody with a T-shirt and just coming out of uh, From New Orleans. with I had a crown on my head. Yeah, that was the Queen Maxine. Queen Maxine. Yeah. And so I'm comfortable with whatever good. and however young people want to reference me. Because you know what's important? What's important is that they have an opinion. Mm-hmm. They have an opinion and now they're unveiling that opinion. Mm-hmm. They're unveiling it in a number of ways. They're choosing their leadership. They like Angela Rye and they wait for you to come on television mm-hmm. because you were speaking in ways that they'd never heard, particularly a young person speak. Mm-hmm. And so they're liking that they are seeing a breakthrough mm-hmm. in speaking truth to power and however they want to embrace that is fine with me. I, I'm, I'm with it. Amazing. Well, you all heard it here from Auntie and Queen Maxine. <laughs> and this is Cousin Angela signing off. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Isn't Queen Maxine dope, though? Like, what is there not to love? Now we are going to talk about the political highlight. This week's political highlight. This week's political highlight is the head of Office of Government Ethics, Walter Schaub Jr., who said, bye, Felicia, to y'all's president last week. So first, let me give you the background. There is something called the Office of Government Ethics that is responsible for ensuring that administrations follow ethics laws, rules, and guidelines. Can you imagine having to enforce ethics rules with this Trump administration? There are ethics committees and offices that provide guidance to every branch of government, judicial, legislative, and executive. I'm willing to bet that in very few instances has ethics in this regard been such a debatable point. 
And we should have all expected this challenge because it, of course, started during the campaign season with Donald Trump's tax returns. If it wasn't tax returns, it was conflicts of interest and emoluments. If it wasn't emoluments, it was Russia. If it wasn't Russia, it was the brushing over of apparent issues with Trump's cabinet nominees rushing them through to confirmation. And OG Walter was on it from the very beginning. His parting words. I've had the honor and privilege of serving the American public at the U.S. Office of Government Ethics under three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. In working with the current administration, it has become clear to me that we need improvements to the existing ethics program. So be clear, it's not a highlight that he's resigning, like at all, like he was trolling the hell out of Donald Trump. In fact, those are the highlights, his tweets trolling y'all's president on conflicts and the many ways in which he spoke out against the president. And as Congresswoman Waters would likely note, he's been the true definition of what a patriot is in the era of Trump. May the rest of those public service professionals carry on with the courage of O.G. Walter Schaub Jr. after he departs public service next week. And please, to all of you public service professionals, follow the instructions of Queen Maxine because somebody's got to do it. They've got to stop his ass. And now, in worse news, the political lowlife goes to... No surprises here. The Trump administration for taking us way back, back in a time. Or maybe it's to the 53% of you hoes who thought it was a good idea to vote for bigotry and discrimination. According to a recent report by the American Enterprise Institute, women in Trump's White House are paid 63.2 cents per dollar earned by men working in the White House. Speaking of going backwards, the gender pay gap has tripled. One, two, three tripled under Trump. 63 cents for the 53%. I don't got nothing but shave for y'all. Six in 10 of the 102 lowest paid executive office employees are dun, 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 women. Remember when Barack Obama signed the Lily Ledbetter Act? Oh, you don't know what that is. Well, let me bless your life. The Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was the very first bill President Barack Obama signed into law. The act prevents wage disparities and pay discrimination. So is this dude so caught up in trying to undo President Obama's legacy that he would undo the work to address wage disparities and not pay women on par with their male counterparts? Apparently. Orangey's basically like, I don't give a damn about Lily, about Lolly, about Susie or Martha, okay? It's not checking for y'all. Well, only about 63 cents worth. You happy now? Man, these 53%, like I really need to hear from you. So that political lowlife segment is a great segue to this week's Hell You Talking About rant, which will help us sort through all of the Trump madness that is literally invading our lives. We can't get away from it. So we may as well pay attention and be action oriented to solve for the disaster that is the Trump administration. The only great thing is the size of the madness. So this dude is out here blaming Barack Obama for not doing enough on Russia. But this is the same dude who is ready to lift sanctions on the Russian government damn near his first week in office. Will you once and for all, yes or no, definitively say that Russia interfered in the 2016 election? I think it could very well have been Russia, but I think it could well have been other countries. And I won't be specific, but uh, 
I think a lot of people interfere. I think it's been happening for a long time. It's been happening for many, many years. Now, the thing I have to mention is that Barack Obama, when he was president, found out about this in terms of if it were Russia, uh, found out about it in August. Now, the election was in November. That's a lot of time. He did nothing about it. The reason is he thought Hillary was going to win. And if he thought I was going to win, he would have done plenty about it. So that's the real question is, why did he do nothing from August all the way to November 8th? Why did he do nothing? His people said he choked. I don't think he choked. Didn't nobody say he choked, bro. You did. And based on what evidence? This is the same dude that couldn't acknowledge that his campaign was talking to Russia. The same dude that quietly looked into lifting sanctions on Russia days after being elected president. The same dude who wants to return the two Russian compounds seized by the Obama administration because Russia interfered in our election, which is the action taken by our last real president as soon as he gathered all the information in December, which is what most responsible adults do. You know, gather the facts. But President Obama choked? What do you call what you're doing when you are the one undermining the very punishment? Are you offering a reward? Because that's what it looks like. These are the kinds of questions that, frankly, need to be raised in an investigation. Meanwhile, you're out here having long meetings with Putin, who you said you think you'll get along very well with. And that certainly appears to be the case. And of course, the Trump administration offered one account over the meeting and Putin's administration offered a total different account. We are supposed to believe that just days after Trump's confusion about whether Russia interfered in the election at all, he confronted Putin all of a sudden on interfering with the election. Come on, son. And all this talk about Russia in our election brings me to an equally important challenge to our democracy. This doggone Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Pause. Who did you say wants to address election integrity? I mean, this dude's homeboys in the Kremlin were all up in 39 states, 39. And in some instances, Russian hackers attempted to alter voter data. But he's supposed to be talking about election integrity? Okay. Who they think they plan? We see you. You ain't slick. I don't think so. Homie, don't play that. We ain't out here rocking the Make America Great Again red hat blinders like we woke as hell. Anyway, here's what you all need to know. Trump established this commission on May 11th, 2017, through Executive Order 13799, where Trump also appointed Mike Pence as the chair. Yes, it's the same Mike Pence who oversaw the latter parts of the transition when the transition team was in consistent contact with Russia. But election integrity? Somehow it's his forte. And now it has 14 commission members because the Secretary of State for Maryland, yeah, he resigned. Well, all hell broke loose when the Secretary of State from Kansas, Chris Kobach, who is also the vice chair of the commission, sent out a letter on June 28th requesting all kinds of data on voters like he's doing a COINTEL operation for voter suppression. Here is a quote from the letter. I'm requesting that you provide to the commission the publicly available voter roll data, including the full first and last names of all registrants, middle names or initials if available, addresses, dates of birth, political party if recorded in your state, the last four digits of social security numbers, voter history, elections they voted in from 2006 onward, active and inactive status, canceled status, 
information regarding any felony convictions, information regarding voter registration in another state, information and pot. Hold on. Let me go back to that for a second. Information regarding voter registration in another state. Y'all should do a quick internet search on how many people in Trump's administration are registered to vote in multiple states. I digress. Information regarding military status and overseas citizen information. This is the Commission on Election Integrity. They want all your business, like all your business, not even business, business, B-I-D-ness, okay? It's too much. And then they are also asking the following. I'm gonna try to answer these. As the commission begins its work, I invite you to contribute your views and recommendations throughout this process. In particular, what changes, if any, to federal election laws would you recommend to enhance the integrity of federal elections? I would say finishing the Russian investigation so that we could actually ensure there are no hackers during the democratic process. The second question is, how can the commission support state and local election administrators with regard to information, technology, security and vulnerabilities? Again, I point to the Russian investigation. What laws, policies or other issues hinder your ability to ensure the integrity of elections you administer? I don't know. I'd say the hacking by a foreign government. What evidence or information do you have regarding instances of voter fraud or registration fraud in your state? Well, this question makes me slightly uncomfortable because we know that Jeff Sessions prosecuted civil rights heroes for voter fraud and that whole case was fraud. What convictions for election related crimes have occurred in your state since the November 2000 federal election? So they're taking it back to W, y'all. What recommendations do you have for preventing voter intimidation or disenfranchisement? How about uh, voter suppression? How about voter ID laws? How about felon disenfranchisement? They're not really trying to hear that. The last question they ask is, what other issues do you believe the commission should consider? I say all things Russia, which is where I started to begin with. But here's the problem. This letter that was issued on June 28th to all 50 states is so sketchy that 45 states and counting won't comply with some aspects of the commission's request. Even Mississippi's secretary of state told Trump to go jump in the Gulf after receiving the letter. I'm sure some of you may be thinking, why should I care at all about this when I'm just trying to fund my summer vacation, pay down this student loan debt, and the rent is too damn high? But here's why. This is not new. It is part of a great challenge. This commission serves as a national opportunity to suppress votes by purging voter rolls, potentially urging states to continue disenfranchising felons and other actions that would impact the elderly, the youth, the poor, and people of color. Voter suppression became a focal point of the conservative agenda right after Barack Obama's first election. And we saw organizations like the American Legislative Exchange Council providing template legislation to state legislators for voter ID despite data saying it would impact the same groups I just mentioned. Why? Because these groups tend to vote more progressive. They want us to go back, but we can't and we won't. Restricting access only serves to widen the gulf of inequality. Why isn't that reason enough to vote? Why isn't that reason enough to engage in the electoral process? You see, they are scared enough of your involvement to establish what really should be called a voter suppression commission, We regularly have these heady TED Talk-like conversations about whether voting is enough or whether the system so oppresses us that we should fight back by not engaging at all. I hope since January 20th, you have learned that this ish can and will get worse if we don't engage. 
So here's the bottom line. Our elected officials, they work for us because they are paid by us. Resistance is not being blind to the facts of what they are doing and how they do it. Resistance is knowing exactly what they are doing and pushing back on an agenda designed to oppress us more. Stay woke. Keep reading. I'm back at you next week. Until then, resist y'all.